0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Mitchell F. Chan, a prominent uh, conceptual artist. So, welcome to the show, Mitch. Hi, thanks for having me, Brian. Oh my God, I'm really excited to have you on because I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm a huge fan of your kind of conceptualization of this new blockchain NF space, NFT space as a place to do conceptual art. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping that by the end of this episode, all of my listeners are going to be as excited about your work. As I am. And as a way of getting that started, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your own background and your own artistic practice and sort of how you came to be interested in the blockchain and NFTs as a medium for doing and realizing conceptual art.
1: Sure. So, I mean, probably the easiest way to explain where I was coming from and how I was led into crypto and using it as an art material. Would be to like describe to you the work that I was doing right before I got into crypto because there's a pretty clean and easy line, right? So you know, um, as as you may know, I made my first you know um, uh, crypto art project in 2017, and the exhibition that I did right before that um, in 2016. Kind of shows where I was at and how I led into that. So I did this exhibition in two thousand sixteen. It was called Art and Activism. It was at Angel Gallery here in in Toronto. Um, I've been a practicing artist for, I mean, like like fifteen years now, um, and um, I have been working progressively towards less and less. Physical artworks, right? Things that are more, uh, uh, you know, immaterial and, and like, like I'm not choosing this word to be cute, but like ethereal. Okay. Um, and I'm doing this in 2016, like not as a way to be a minimalist, right? Because, you know, that's a movement that is for a certain school of minimalism. That's about kind of like the object for the object's sake, right? The object, the minimal object as, As you know, an object of like Zen, like contemplation or something like that, that's reductive, but let's just go with it. And I'm not choosing minimal materials for for that. I'm choosing it because I believe that that minimal material footprint is the best way to actually represent things that are in the real world. So in 2016, I'm making this sculpture and I do primarily big stuff. I do big stuff. And so this um, this uh, room-sized installation was called Something Something National C- Conversation. And you can kind of imagine this as an empty gallery, which I, I guess empty galleries are going to be kind of a theme in my work. And there's two holes, all right, in opposite facing walls. Every 10 seconds or so out of these two holes, there'd be these clouds of water vapor that would emit poof and they would, they would move towards each other. All right. And then they would collide in the middle of the room and just dissipate into nothingness. In the middle of the room, there was this like ring of lights. Like it was like a, like, it was like, like a, like a, uh, um, MMA octagon or something like the spectacle. And while all this is happening, Um, there's a soundtrack. There's a soundtrack that I've composed. And the soundtrack is actually a piece of generative art. And it's reading the headlines from the New York Times, like in real time, and like through this vocodery type voice and producing this random cello score. And so there's a whole bunch of themes that are here, right? One is that I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to Make a representation of how online discourse works, right? And online discourse right now is entirely shaped by the invisible structures. Right Like the invisible series of tubes through which we push discourse, right discourse can only be one way right it can only be short snippets and sound bites, and it can only be insubstantial and confrontational and argumentative because that is the structure that we push discourse through now twitter facebook, etc right um, and 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 it is this monotonous drone and so I am basically realizing that to represent invisible structures in our society, I need to use invisible materials or almost invisible materials because it is the structures of society that are worth representing in art, right? That is the stuff that we want to make people aware of. It's the stuff that we want to communicate for me it's just you know, I mean, I could paint sunsets, but we kind of know that sunsets are pretty, like, like we, we kind of know that. Um, and so that, that's, that's, that's one piece, right? I, and then I have this other piece in the exhibition, another room-sized installation. And these two pieces show where my head is at. This piece is just a series of velvet ropes, okay? And it's velvet ropes, like, uh, set in rows and set in columns. And they're mainly blue with one sort of set of red velvet ropes. And they're undulating because all of the poles that the velvet ropes are on, they're actually on robotic arms that move them up and down in this sort of pseudo random fashion. And so that they look like choppy waves of an ocean. And the piece is titled J.M.W. Turner's The Slave Ship. And it's a piece where I'm interested in a different structure. I'm interested in the structure of the art world um, and in the art market and in the art institution as a sort of privileged and elite space. And the question that I'm trying to answer with this piece, with the idea of representing one of the most famous activist paintings in history, that being JMW's A Slave Ship, which was a famously like an anti-slavery protest piece that JMW Turner, Turner made long after England had outlawed slavery. I'm, I'm trying to say, okay, as long as art is a sort of elite experience, as long as it is a commodity, right, how effective can its message be? All right. Can it truly be like an instrument of change when it operates in these exclusive spaces? And for a lot of artwork, like I'm at this moment. Here's the thing about that sculpture. The velvet rope is the artwork. okay? and that's kind of a metaphor for how the art world works. So that's where I'm at. All right. I'm interested in like the way that the artwork as a commodity affects its ability to communicate. And I'm interested in immaterial things as representations of other important immaterial things. So I do that in 2016, 2017. I'm wondering what's the next step going to be? Well, I've talked about discourse. All right. Now I would like to talk about like economic systems. I learned that there's this thing called Ethereum and it's programmable money. And hey, if I can program it, that means I can make artwork out of of it. So I get some Ethereum and I decide, eh, all right, I'm going to try to make an artwork out of this. I do some research and I ended up with my project.
0: Well, so maybe you could talk then a little bit about that project. Why the blockchain and the Ethereum blockchain in particular looks so attractive to you for this particular piece um, and sort of how the, how the kind of the, the medium intersected or interacted with the conceptual content that you wanted to engage with and develop.
1: Right. So I, so I come to be like, I'm, my main interest in blockchain at that point is that it is this profound nothingness Right. And you can read that very cynically that, again, like this is a famous old argument. I mean, it feels old. Right. Bitcoin's not backed by gold. It's not backed by anything. It's backed by nothing. Right. And it's a very, you know, and it is, of course, like, you know, an energy intensive type of nothingness. And you can read that very cynically as skeptics do. But also you can say the exact same thing and read it like almost mystically or hopefully or optimistically like it is something that is underpinned by a deep and profound like faith or collective trust or collective agreement so you know and in some ways this is where i still am with you know critique of blockchain nfts everybody who says you know well bitcoin isn't anything you know i just i just say it back like yes it it isn't 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 that fascinating isn't that great um but that's like the central paradox of this because it is nothing because it is not gold bars in a vault in a nuclear fallout shelter it can be anything so i'm trying to find art world precedence for this i'm trying to find art world precedence how does art how has art engaged with the idea of like something that is nothing and everything all at the same time and allows the possibility that that is beautiful w- while not being like preachy about it or evangelical, right? I discover that there's this French artist um, named Yves Klein. And in 1958, he he created and sold profound nothingness, right? He um, He was an artist who... Had spent his entire career working with the color blue. He was very famous for it. In fact, he even patented his own type of blue paint that only he could use. He was doing this like before, like Anish Kapoor bought the rights to like a black paint, right? But but, but he actually developed this. It was really cool. And so he he decides that he's so intimately connected with this color of blue that he ought to be able to confer. The sensibility, the feeling of this color through sheer force of will. And he tries to do it with something that he calls a zone of immaterial pictorial sensibility. And uh, when visitors would come to experience this, they would be confronted with an empty space. And an empty space that Klein insisted was imbued with the sensibility of the color blue. And it sounds like, you know, maybe a fancy conceptual artist, like taking the piss, but I mean, he is a person who dedicated his, his life to this thing. And there are really good reasons to believe, uh, you know, in, in in him and to be credulous, um, and acknowledge his sincerity. And so then, and so this is interesting, right? And this is a very interesting metaphor, for what what blockchain is, right? It it is like essentially distilled belief. It is distilled collective faith, and that value, whether it is like uh, uh, an aesthetic value or a financial value, it exists for you if you want it, right? And if you are willing to be credulous, and being credulous doesn't necessarily make you a sucker, right? But then, so 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 that on its surface was really interesting. But then it goes deeper, and this, and this is where it became not just an analogy for blockchain as it existed, but an analogy for NFTs as they were about to exist. Because I'm making this before ERC 721, I'm making this before the term NFT even exists, right? Which is that he decides that this immaterial sensibility should be available for sale. As artworks are, right? Because Klein was another person who is on that same uh, like investigation that I was on about how does an artwork status as commodity affect its ability to communicate? How does it affect the real aesthetic or spiritual experience of the artwork? So he says, okay, you can buy this thing, you can buy this, you can buy this empty space only for pure gold. You hand over your pure gold, you get a token, right? Um, and when you get this non fungible token with the ID of the specific artwork on it, um, then you also have the right to burn the token. And this is a way of making a statement about the fact that the property rights of a piece are not the experience of it, that ownership of an experience is different from legal ownership. And he asks, collectors to choose, which they would like. And if they would like to choose to relinquish their token, he will perform a ceremony with them All right, at the River Seine and he will confer a, a, like a, a true spiritual um, ownership over the piece. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know that we'll ever actually sell artwork on the blockchain through tokens because that's a little bit crazy. I can't imagine people would ever go for that but if they did, that is exactly what it would mean. Right. So I just like, I did a bunch of research. I found clients notes on how these things were to to be transacted um, and how their sales were to be recorded. And I just, then I learned solidity and I just translated all that stuff into solidity. And then like what came out was, essentially a non-fungible token, right? It was pre-ERC721, but it was in every way like a non-fungible token. It was like a modified ERC20 that, um, you know, kept track of exactly which token people had and it gave them the right to burn it. And it was, was, you know, and, and that happened.
0: That's so cool. And one of the things that I thought was really especially cool and interesting about the piece is that you didn't just create the artwork. You also created a narrative around the artwork in an essay that you wrote and published as as the blue paper. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of writing that paper, why that was important to you, and what role you think, if any, that narrative surrounding artistic production has in this context?
1: Yes, the paper was really important to me because as I'm doing that, um, you know, I'm, I'm also writing what what ended up being a 33-page essay. Then it was about the history of Bitcoin and the history of Ethereum and the history of Eve Klein. And I tried to not do too much of connecting the dots between like, and in, in saying exactly what I was trying to do, um, because that would have taken a lot of the fun out of it. But I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. One is that I actually like, I thought that the essay would end up being the actual artwork, right? Like, that's what I thought. I figured there's no way that people are going to actually buy my tokens. I mean, um, but you know, with this essay, I think there are this is a really interesting story that i can tell to the art world to help them realize that there's actually like like this the cryptocurrency is a mat- a loaded material it is a material that comes preloaded with ideas um and to uh you know demonstrate to the crypto world that actually conceptual art is a really interesting lens through which we can understand what the heck we're all doing here? So I think that the essay is is about the art, like is is going to be the artwork. But um, the other reason why I I make the essay is because anytime you're dealing with like conceptual art, you're really asking your audience to put a lot of trust in you, right? I mean, you 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 know this because we know from countless art world cliches every. Like, You know, every art school student gets to like their first year BFA program and then and then they decide, oh, they learn, oh, we don't have to paint sunsets anymore. I'm a conceptual artist and this is a piece about my secrets. And, you know, and it's super easy. And and it's why like important early conceptual art is so easy to parody because it does seem very low effort right? And you are trusting that that artist is working in good faith. You are trusting that they actually believe the kind of nonsense that they're babbling on about um, and that they've de- dedicated a lot of time to this. And like, it was really important to me that this is like not a scam coin. There are ideas here that I'm really serious about and I believe in. So yeah, so I make the, so I, I, I make the essay. It was done sort of, yeah, a little bit. Um, I wanted to have a little bit of fun with it. This was 2017. So it was the ICO boom. So there were all of these like alt coins coming out with just a white paper that said they were going to do like this and that and whatever. Very few of them worked out. So my piece was called the blue paper because it was sort of a parody of of that culture. And it did. And, and, and again, I try not to be too evangelical and I also try to be not too cynical Right. Where I'm phrasing this as like in the essay, I talk about other altcoins that are promising products or platforms that I know will never come to market. Right. They're selling you nothing at all. They're selling you tokens in an ecosystem that they have yet to develop and probably won't develop. And I'm saying, OK, look, this is also another like token that is linked to nothing at all. But this is my flavor of nothing. So I invite people to be cynical or skeptical about it, but then I also demonstrate that I, you know, am putting in the work and the good faith into it. Well, so in the paper
0: you mentioned reaching out to the Eve Klein estate about this particular project and sort of how you framed the project to them and how they reacted to it. I mean, I, I wonder, that I found that really interesting. I wonder if you could kind of briefly summarize and discuss sort of how you tried to tell them what you were doing and what their take on it was.
1: <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, it, it won't take me a lot of time to summarize their reaction because they basically had no reaction. I probably did a poor job of explaining it to them. Well, because like, imagine trying to explain this to someone four years ago in a cold call email. Okay. This is a foundation and an estate that barely has a website. Like, and I'm basically saying, look, I'm this, this artist, I'm, I'm not a very famous artist. Like you haven't heard of me, but I'm kind of interested in connecting to this technology. So I tried to reach, reach out to like their estate. Um, and then I also tried to, uh, reach out to the commercial gallery that represents their estate. And one of them just emailed me back. I mean, with a very like I, I tried multiple people at both places uh, with like a two line email that just said, you know, the family is not interested in pursuing this project at this time. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. I think that this is a really interesting um continuation of the project. I think that, you, you know, and, and I do think that this story really, uh, I think it adds to Klein's legacy a lot. I think it shows, how incredibly prescient he was in being one of the only artists in history who dared have an earnest conversation about the fact that his artworks were also commodities, and that was potentially problematic, right? Very few artists ever engage with that. Like, artists will do... There, there, there are two schools, like, they are kind of two strategies through which artists... Attempt to acknowledge their work as commodity. One is the kind of like Damien Hirst, like like superstar, like you know, uh, like jerk way, being like, "Look, I have made a diamond skull and it is worth a hundred million dollars. How how droll! Look at look at this is all just a a game for the super rich, aren't I clever? Right, but." One, that's, like, not really clever. And two, like I said, when you're making a conceptual statement, like, it is very important that you can communicate that you're acting in good faith. And when an artist like a sort of Damien Hurst, like, or, or, or even Jeff Koons, whom I, I really love for, for other reasons, they just have everything to gain and nothing to lose from this. So you can't really call it, like, an investigation, right? And you can't really say that they are in good faith, you know, Interrogating uh, the, the, um, the, the the nature of artwork as commodity, right? They're more just like doing it and profiting in it, and like not being apologetic about it, right? Um, and so that's like the one way that artists uh, engage with it. And then the other way, you know, there is a very conceptual way, right? Like a sort of like like Lawrence Weiner or like Lee Lozano way, right? Like famously, like Lee Lozano has this piece called Investment Piece. Right where she like takes all this money and invests it, and that's the artwork, right? But and, and, with, and but the problem with that is that the artwork really just is a financial instrument, and therefore there cannot be any dialogue between the artwork as financial instrument and the artwork as artwork, right? Because there's nothing to experience in like a sensory way, um, and so that falls short, right? But Eve Klein was really the only artist who was comfortable saying like this is a spiritual experience this is a commodity with a price tag attached to it. And I do acknowledge that these two things leak into each other. That's incredible. You know, that is incredible. Um, And so, you know, I thought, but I didn't explain this that well in my original emails to his estate. So, so they weren't interested. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they'll be interested now.
0: Okay. Well, so you created this work in 2017. What was the reception like? initially and how has the reception of your work and interest in your work developed over time
1: so the initial reception was i mean it was curious for like the 40 people who like paid attention you know i thought thought that was pretty cool um you know some of my friends bought the tokens That was that was was cool you know Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I presented the piece at Interaccess Media Art Center in Toronto. That was like the grand unveiling where I minted the zero token and I presented, um, the conversation Interaccess is like a media art center in Toronto that, you know, had been active, still is active for like 35, 40 years. And they've, they've really been at the vanguard of a lot of, you know, art and technology stuff. So that was really cool. I had a relationship with them. They agreed to let me come in and do my little spiel and have my, my grand opening. I lectured it like once again at Kent State University where it was, you know, again, sort of like curious and then like nothing, like for, for years. Right. Um, and that was fine. Like I was really, you know, that, that honestly, that was totally fine. I had, I had, I had other stuff to do. Um, and then, but it was just even before NFTs blew up. It was like 2020, like two and a half, three years later, because it takes a long time after I make a work for me to decide, like, whether it was good or not. Right. Like, that's fair. Right. Like, I think that that's I think that that's fair. I think you should, you know, t- take some time in assessing your own work. And so it's like two, two and a half years later. I'm like, I think that actually might might be my best piece. I, I, I yeah, I, I actually I think that was good right? NFTs aren't really a thing yet, but I'm like, I, 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 I had decided. And, 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 and at that point I was like, I was kind of like, okay, I got to stop what I'm doing. Cause I was back to doing a lot of big public sculptures and I, I need to get back into digital art and material art. That was, that was the interesting thing. Um, and so, but, but, but yeah, there was no, not, not a lot of reception when I told like, like a year ago, a year and a half ago when I was trying to get some other museums and galleries on board with doing more like the follow up projects to this, there was like zero interest. Um, As for what the reception is, you know, now after, you know, a bunch of crazy stuff has happened, I would honestly say like to be determined, like we will, no, I mean, we will see because the reception of the market is the reception of the market. And that's just a thing that happens and it's cool. And we all just got to like, obviously I'm incredibly grateful. I am, but you got to keep a level head about that. Um, because the real you know the real reception uh you know has to do with how much we can how much this story does end up bleeding into a cultural narrative right cultural institutions are still just wrapping their head around this and we'll see what stories end up being the the the, the defining stories and even outside of traditional cultural institutions the storytellers in the crypto native storytellers are just beginning to develop right, and we will see like where this narrative ends up you know in 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 that in in that recounting and we'll like like I said, it took me like two years to just, dis- like for me to decide that the artwork you know is good and now that it has this widespread attention let's wait another couple of years to see like what the overall like reception of of the world is right word word, but like. For listeners who aren't as, you
0: know, who didn't live through the very recent explosion of the NFT market, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of timeline, right? Because as you say, it's sort of like work was, the work was cool the entire time, but not a whole lot of people realized it yet. But at a certain point, a lot of people did realize it. Kind of just walk us through like when and how people started to pay attention and realize
1: how interesting and important your project was. Sure. So the timeline is the token comes out August, 2017 and you know, and it, like, it was like a couple of friends, you know, minted the pieces and then nothing like nothing, nothing, nothing. All right. There was actually one mint that happened in the middle of the wilderness after no one had touched the contract for two years. There was one mint from this curious ENS address, H X R T S ETH, <laughs> which turned out to be Sam Hart. Um, and, uh, um, he was an, an, another guy who I know you've, you chatted with here on this show. And so I was like, eventually reached out to him. I was really intimidated. Like I tracked him down. I looked him up and I was like, Oh man, this guy's like really smart. And I was like, Oh, and I was also really embarrassed that I didn't know about him and I didn't know about the people who like he had been working with in, in, in his world. Like that was really, I mean, total mea culpa, right? Um, And eventually I got up, like, the nerve to, like, send him an email and say, like, hey, I noticed that you, like, got this thing. Like, can I chat with you? And he turned out to be, like, the nicest guy. And all of, like, the really, really smart people that he hangs out with also turned out to be the nicest people. Um, So that was great. Um, And then I was just sort of, like you know, NFTs were a thing now. So I was kind of coming back into the space. I chatted with, you know, some people and like, I was not trying to push too hard my thing. I I, I had the feeling that, you know, I had something special that people would be interested in. And I would tell people like, yeah, I mean, I kind of made this thing like, you know, back in 2017. And they would say, show me. No way. And I'd send them the contract and they'd be like, Okay, cool. So they, so the, like, there were three tokens left in the first series of the artwork, right? And the way that the contract works is after every tranche of tokens, the contract automatically pauses and it won't start again until I say so. So that first tranche of tokens was still available, like, from 2017. And they, like, kind of like, and so, you know, a a couple of people, got them. Um, some people in like the crypto punks community and, uh, you know, cause those people are always snooping around trying to, trying to figure out what's going on. And then, you know, I made a wrapper for it, um, to be on open and it was, and then, you know, I would release more and they started to sell out like pretty, you know, pretty quickly. Like I would release 10 more tokens. And they'd sell out in like 90 seconds. The other interesting thing about this contract is that every series of tokens, they were all sold on a bonding curve, right? This is as per Eve Klein's original project. So the tokens started out at 0.1 ETH. Then the next 10 were 0.2. And then the next 10 were 0.4. And the next 10 were 0.8, so on and so forth, right? And so, you know, they were, you know, they they were kind of chugging along. um, And then, you know, fingerprints, DAO was interested in acquiring some. The Fingerprints DAO had just been formed and this was their first acquisition, right? After like they built themselves around a collection of 26 autoglyphs and then they decided this would be their first acquisition after that as a piece that sort of used the blockchain in innovative ways to say things about the blockchain as a technological medium and an artistic medium. Then I paused the contract for a little bit because it was just getting like too too, too crazy, right? With the bonding curve, all of a sudden there were these huge, increases in prices on primary and i just wanted to slow it down and then eventually i just couldn't really slow it down anymore so by august the four-year anniversary of the project i released the final tokens they like sold out in the same block and then secondary just like kind of kind of went went crazy like secondary went crazy and these things went to like a, you know 100th floor and then you know, and then, and then Sotheby's came to fingerprints and asked fingerprints, you know, to put some artworks in auction and fingerprints submitted me. And the piece was just in auction at Sotheby's, you know, where it did remarkably well. And it's been, and like I said, you know, the market is, is the market and it's going to do what the market does. I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful. Like I'm super happy. Um, and it's raises, all of this stuff to think about because it's like it—it it is one thing you make artwork about an artwork as a commodity and you always think you're talking about this stuff out there <laughs> you know <laughs> you always think you're talking about other artworks that are commodity, you making a critique and then you know it's this point where like these things are blue chip commodities and you're like oh this artwork is about me now <laughs> you know yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're making a joke and all of a sudden jokes on me. Yeah.
1: Know? Which is, which is good. I mean, that is, I, I always believe as an artist, if you're trying to make a joke, you all, you always should be the butt of the joke. And it, and it's, and it's not a joke. It's like, it's a very like level headed, just, just, just some thoughts, you know, it's, it's some thoughts.
0: Well, so, you know, one thing I'm interested in is kind of your sense from the inside as an artist who kind of came to this space early and has been working in this space, throughout that period of time and kind of seen it develop. It seems to me that on on some level, a lot of the interest in um, the kind of the primary interest, the, the kind of the main focus of a lot of people who are really pursuing kind of art on the blockchain at this moment is in really the earliest efforts of people to kind of start seeing the blockchain, not just as a way to provide a marker, but as a space for creating artwork in a kind of dynamic way. Um, am I right to kind of get that sense of what people are looking for? And, you know, w- what do you think about that as a kind of phenomenon? And, you know, what does that say, if anything, about like what's next?
1: So are, are you talking about particularly like people um, like using blockchain, like as an artistic medium, like using Solidity as an artistic medium? Sure. Well, OK, I'll, look, I'll say something a little bit controversial here, which is that like despite the fact that, you, know, again, like my work was initially collected by like fingerprints who was looking at, you know, artwork that does exactly what you just said, use the blockchain as an artistic medium. I think that the future of I, I think the future of of NFTs and art on blockchain does like kind of lie elsewhere, right? because first of all as an artistic medium solidity and blockchain is extremely limited right like it is a very like 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 it is not a particularly elegant tool and you see and a lot of that space kind of has been claimed right like i look at and don't get me wrong the artwork that has done it is incredible on a couple of like on a couple of levels right it's like 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 deaf beef I mean, Deaf Beef's art is uh, look. So, somebody could come along and 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 totally su- surprise me, right? And maybe like blow that out out, out of the water. But like, Deaf Beef actually used the blockchain as an artistic medium. Like, his code exists on chain. You manipulate it through on-chain transactions. Like it, like it is. It is cool. I truly wonder how much further we can take this whole like on on-chain thing, right? Um, and a and, and, and so it is like, like eventually how many great artworks, like, can we make on what is like essentially like a graphing calculator that everyone can see? Right. <laughs> and it, it turns out, like, like some of these artists prove like, oh, you can make some pretty cool stuff. Um, I don't know if we can continue to make decades, like, you know, worth of, wor- like, like, like worth of that stuff. Um, and then the, like, like, The other thing that I'll say is so my artwork was very much about like it was a blockchain artwork about the blockchain. Okay, I'm really interested in thinking about the conceptual implications of blockchain using art as a tool to understand it. Right. Um, uh, The cultural implications of it and stuff like that. I know that for. That's only one. That should. Only be a minor sliver of the amount of art that we make here, you know, we can't be totally inward facing and navel gazing about this. Cause like, eventually it's just like, you know, if I see one more Oscar bait movie about the magic of cinema and the power of making movies, like I'll barf. Right. If I see like one, if I see like one more, like, uh, um, like, 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 like if I see one more like squeegee painting ripoff, like about the sensuousness of paint, like, 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 you know, a painting about painting, like all barf, like eventually that gets boring. Those things are important for the historical record and they're, imp- and and make no mistake, they are important right now. Like right now as we're figuring these things out and having these conversations, artwork that is inward facing, that is extremely contemplative of its own conditions and methods of production have a lot of value. They're great for us. They're great learning tools for for us right now. They will push this forward. But the end goal for all of this is not to continue making blockchain art about blockchain art. It's to make art about the world around us. And I believe that it just makes sense that a lot of that art will happen to exist on blockchain. Yeah, well, so maybe you could talk a little
0: bit about some of your newer projects engaging with the medium subsequent to, to, to your, your, uh, your, your, your previous work. Um, like, I know you have a, a new set of pieces kind of based on some ideas that you derived from Solo Wit and then kind of transformed into a new context. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, like, kind of why that seemed like a logical next step and sort of what you wanted to transform about the original project.
1: Right, yeah. So in August I also did I did a drop on art blocks. It was called Lewitt Generator Generator. And in that project, again, I'm 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 doing the thing that I just said we have to eventually get away from. But I did preface this by saying that, you know, right now in this moment, I believe this was Im- important work to do. And like Lewitt Generator Generator will be like my, my, my last artwork that like references older art in order to help us understand this moment. But I still I truly think it's a very valuable exercise to do right now. Um so Lewitt Generator Generator was like again, it's a continuation of an idea that I had many years ago. In 2014, um I did a project called Solowitt Generator. And it revolved around the idea of this conceptual artist, um, Lewitt, who was active uh again in the late 50s and 1960s. I I I have a type, um, I admit. And he was this guy who said, all right, my artwork is going to be a set of instructions on how people can make a drawing on a wall. And the only thing like that I'm selling is this set of instructions. The only thing I'm making is a set of instructions, like what you do with it is you just follow the instructions. You have it, but this final manifestation, this physical manifestation of the work is beside the fact. The artwork is in the idea. Now, this is revolutionary in like in 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 a couple of ways because he's locating the artistic value of a piece in the idea of its conception, right? But he's backing that up by locating the money value of the piece in the set of instructions. That is what you buy, right? You do not buy... When you buy a silhouette piece, you don't, like, take a drywall knife and cut the dry... Like, cut the wall out and move it to your house. You just get the instructions and you do it again, you know, at your house or at your museum, as is the case. And so this says a lot to me about the, like... um uh, shifting location of of the commodity value of the artwork. And that was a very really interesting thing to look at in 2014. Because in 2014, what we have is this sort of like open source, like creative commons culture, that's finding its legs and figuring out what this is about. And as we figure this out, it's kind of hurting a lot of the artists who make basically intangible information as they're finished product, right? The music industry is hurting because of like file sharing. Uh you know, the news media that sells information. We haven't really figured out how to get people to pay for that information. So the idea that you can sell an idea, all right? Selling an idea seems quite absurd in 2014. So I made this project, I made this exhibition at that time that was sort of about that. And it seemed like a very interesting thing to revisit in 2021 where once again we are back to selling information. Oh my God, we're back. It's great. We can actually sell information again. We can sell the concept of a piece. And the physical manifestation of it is once again, irrelevant, just as the conceptualists would have loved. Sure, you want to right click, save these JPEGs? Do it, do it a hundred times, do it a thousand times, right? Only one person will have legal ownership over the sort of idea. And this is especially interesting to do on art blocks, right? There's this resurgence in generative art where artists are creating algorithms, all right, that spit out any number of possible outcomes that is just writing the instructions on how to make an artwork and how it comes out is really, you know, I, 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 you, you take your hand off the steering wheel, right? That was so, so that process was also developed through Solidwood and the Conceptualist in 1960. And this was, you know, just something that I thought was, it was a cool story to be telling in this moment, like in the year 2021, because we we have so many people who are entering art through crypto and we have so many people who are entering crypto through art, you know, and who are learning, you know, generative art through all these things. It is, for me, it is still a cool thing to do to weave together these stories and just try to create literally a token of these ideas, you know, that people can, can collect and make their own. Well so Mitch as they say in the financial
0: services industry mm-hmm. past results don't uh, don't indicate future per- per- performance but you've been so prescient so many times in this space about what the medium could accomplish and what it might look like in the future i, I wonder if you have any thoughts like at, at this moment sort of what what nfts could be with the market or maybe markets for nfts might look like in the future and sort of what it might look like to make that transition you're describing away from a purely inward focused art on the blockchain to an art that maybe is starting to look outside or do different things as well
1: right so there i mean there are two ways that we can that we can go with this right like we've seen through nfts like what happens whenever you just have you know when when you add like liquidity and speed to an art market, right? It's just, it turns out that is an extremely combustible combination. Um, And so there are two ways that it can go. One of which I was sort of predicting in 2017 and, and one of which I never would have predicted in 2017, right? We could do like a kind of, I don't even know what the, like, Philosophical or like moral or like societal implications of it would be. But so obviously, we're going to see more tokenization of physical things in the real world, right? It will happen when we develop like a robust off chain legal layer for dealing with that. But it seems pretty much inevitable that while physical goods, right, and physical art artifacts and physical commodities can stay wherever they are, that essentially their financial aspect, right, can travel around the world at great velocity. Right. And this is and 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 like we know this will happen because a version of it happens already, right? It is happening in free ports and in like in Singapore and Switzerland, where the artwork must stay put so that it's right. So that it's ownership rights can be free, right? <laughs> like, you know, to put like a really dystopian on it. We must imprison the artwork like, like for that it's financial energy can travel around the world with impunity. So we know we like, we just, we know that this, that, that this will happen. Um, And what that will mean for like the bigger art world, Um, we, I, I, that it's, it's too, it's too big. It's too big for me to predict. Um, But the other thing that I'd like to see happen, right? The whole point of like digital zones from 2017 is that, you know, when, when you connect an artwork to a token, it means that the artwork can be anything. Right. And I was trying to, recreate the most extreme example of that where the artwork was nothing and everything, where it was like nothingness and like extreme, like you know, conceptualness and and, and spirituality. Um, but this I hope that this opens up a lot of possibilities for conceptual art, for performance art, for all types of art that was very ephemeral. Um, and therefore, you know, didn't really have a great commodity form and therefore, like, was not really a sane thing for artists to pursue as a career. That's what I really that, you know, that, that, that that's what I really hope for is that, you know, sure, right now, like we're selling, you know, we're selling JPEGs, you know, um, you know, maybe we're selling like like a lot of JPEGs of Blender renders. And that's great. Those are talented artists and they definitely deserve like their moment in the sun and continued success. Um, but, you know, maybe we're also getting to the point where you know, we're selling more like, you know, MP4s of of uh, interpretive dance performances, you know, or descriptions of, you know, or, or descriptions of conceptual acts, things like that. Well, so Mitch, this has been
0: amazing. And I've learned so much from you already. In closing, I wonder if you have any thoughts for artists who are sort of encountering this space for the first time or thinking about engaging with crypto, the blockchain, the NFT market for the first time about, you know, kind of how to better understand what that would mean and what it would look like for them to engage with that market in a meaningful and productive way.
1: Very tricky. Um, it like, look, it's, it's very tricky. Like the one thing that we know right now is like like, like right now in like super fast 2021 you just you 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 can't follow trends like by the time you by the time you get out there like it 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 it'll be it'll be too late this is i like it looks like look it it looks kind of a lot like the advice i would give to somebody who's trying to be an artist like 3 years ago right which is that you have to be patient patient um build first build your conviction in terms of your position and what you're interested in. And hopefully that comes from, you know, life experiences that you've had before, life experiences as, you know, a lawyer, you know, or, uh, you know, a, like, or a barista or like whatever it was, you know, if you have a story to tell, make sure that, you know, you have it with, with conviction. Because when you have that, because you will have to tell your story over and over and over again to build up a community of people who, believe in you right who who understand that you're acting in in good faith um and so it better be a story that you're comfortable like repeating and, and 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 reiterating and then you can have patience and people who will find you so it's like the same advice I would give to an artist five years ago except honestly now I think you kind of if you have those things going for you like a real voice um and real like like you know technical like skill and acumen which by the way doesn't need to be programming Like it doesn't. It doesn't need to be computers oriented. But if you've honed your conviction and honed your craft with patience, you probably have a better chance of succeeding right now than you did as an artist five years ago. So be optimistic. And um, yeah, and and, and have faith. Amazing. Well, Mitch, again,
0: thank you so much. This was truly amazing. And I'm going to have to pilfer a bunch of your ideas for my future uh, writing projects
1: okay only if i can pill for yours right back okay always always i encourage it <laughs> okay thanks brian